Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Data with episode 220 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT as we run through another exciting week in the world of professional wrestling, our WWE show for the week, our full analysis and reaction along with the complete results to the WWE draft. That is already in the books this week. Be sure to check the archives if you have not listened to that yet, but we are not here to talk today about WWE proper. We're here to talk AEW and NXT, as I said. Uh, Plenty to discuss on today's show. Lots of developments on AEW and NXT, so I don't want to waste much time. In fact, I'm here already to remind you that getting over... So please, folks, do us a favor... Go back to being marks for the Silver King for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Let people know how much you love the show. Tell them why you listen. Tell them why they should subscribe. And also, do not forget, word of mouth is very important too. So tell your friends, family, and coworkers, anyone you know who likes professional wrestling, tell them to subscribe to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. And also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast. You guys know all the reasons to follow us. We tweet about wrestling all week. We do polls. Uh, We have live shows ahead of pay-per-views. I mean, it's great, right? Great Twitter account. Talk about wrestling. Talk shit really about wrestling all week, but we try to stay positive there, of course, as well. Uh, So yeah, that's it. You know, that's the intro. Let's get into the show. We're going to start, of course, with AEW, Dynamite, and Rampage. We will talk about NXT in the second half of the show. As always, you can check our episode descriptions, which give timestamps on every single segment, not just for this show, the AEW NXT show, but for every episode of Getting Over. We have timestamps in the description so you can skip around. If we have an ultimate preview for a pay-per-view, you can skip around to that ultimate preview if you're listening the day before the show. But of course, as always, I hope you listen to the full episode because that is the entire point. So we're going to start with AEW. We're going to, as always, combine Dynamite and Rampage together. Basically, any storylines that take place over both shows, we'll talk about them in a single segment, and you know we'll wrap things up by ensuring that we discuss everything that happens on both shows. So I'm going to mostly do things in order of how they happened on Dynamite, with the exception of how we're going to start, because we're going to start with the best thing AEW gave us this entire week, which was the Casino Ladder Match main event on Dynamite. Uh, Moxley was backstage in a pr- doing a promo saying he's pissed off, his baby daughter is driving him crazy, and he's going to win the ladder match. It was a really good promo, but it was also the only build for the main event across the entire show. We did not hear from anyone else in the match except John Moxley one time for 30 seconds. I thought that was odd. Uh, Orange was out first with the 76ers mascot. That was pretty cool. Pac was second. Andrade El Idolo was third and even did a ridiculous sunset flip powerbomb over the ladder with Pac. Uh, And that was the spot of the match until I think maybe we got a spot that was equal to or better than it a little bit later, but it was incredible. I I personally think it was the spot of the show. Doing that sunset flip powerbomb over a ladder, it looks so damn cool. The impact is great and they pulled it off exceptionally well. 
Uh, Matt Hardy, Lance Archer, and Mox were four through six. Orange hit two punches with Archer's head in the ladder. And Hangman Adam Page came out as the Joker, as most expected, to a massive reaction from the crowd. Page went wild with a fallaway slam on Orange into a ladder, a crossbody into Archer through a ladder. Andrade took a fall outside into a ladder, and then Hangman almost dropped Pac while hitting a dead eye off a ladder through a table. He almost like dropped him a little bit when he was doing it, but it was an insane spot. So that and the Sunset Flip Powerbomb, those were the two best spots of the match and, and of the entire show. Mox took Hangman out with a paradigm shift, and Hardy dropped the leg midway up a ladder onto Orange through a table. I believe that was outside the ring. Archer stood around in the ring, just kind of waiting for Hangman to come back. Uh, and he got hit with a buckshot lariat. Mox hit Page with a chair while he was climbing. They brawled the top of the ladder. And then Mox kind of just fell off the ladder, uh, like from a punch, but it was delayed. And Hangman grabbed the chip to get his title shot. So it's one thing for me for a ladder match main event to be 17 minutes period. This easily could have used another five at a minimum. And I don't know why AEW forced so much into the show that it didn't ensure this had 20 minutes plus as the main event. But it's quite another thing for a ladder match to be 17 minutes when it's casino style and you have to spread out all the entrance. Because of that, it didn't reach the levels of greatness that I'd have hoped. But don't get me wrong, the match was still a banger. Hangman was the obvious joker and the obvious winner. But it didn't matter that it was obvious because it's what we wanted. And the crowd was so hot for him that if they paid it off any other way with like Mox winning, the crowd would have been hot and they would have cheered. But it would not have been the reaction that Hangman got, which was certainly deserved. It appears as if AEW ran this entire angle, the the entire gimmick of the match, just to obviously get the number one contendership back on page to give him a match with Omega after he had to duck out of AEW for a bit due to his wife's pregnancy and for those personal reasons. Now it appears clear that whenever the match happens, and I'm expecting it's going to happen at full gear, which is a pay-per-view that many don't realize if you never watched BTE, it's actually named after Hangman Page, Um, but it's going to be Hangman winning the title, I presume, at that event over Kenny Omega. So overall, I'm going to go 3.75 stars and a B plus Because of the time and the format, it was mostly just a spot fest. But if you put this match on a pay-per-view with the exact same people and went 25 or 30 minutes, you're talking about 4.5 stars, probably higher than that because of how ridiculous they could all be together. It just did feel extremely rushed. Um, And again, the finish with with Mox kind of just falling wasn't really that great. But other than that, it was a fantastic main event and it was easily the best thing on Dynamite. It was the best thing on AEW television for the last, um, I was gonna say seven days, but however many days it is, I guess six days, so six days, seven days. Same thing, my point is it was the best thing we got in AEW this past week. And then lastly, before we move on, the casino style that AEW uses for its battle royals and for some of its ladder matches, it works for the battle royals because you're getting waves of entrance and it's not as drawn out, for example, as the Royal Rumble, but it's also not as crazy at the beginning as a regular battle royal. So I like the casino style for those battle royal type of matches. For a ladder match, I don't think it works. Especially if AEW never pays off someone winning before the Joker enters the match. Or really just the Joker not winning, which I believe, and I could be wrong, the Joker, they've done three of these, I think, and I think the Joker's won two of three times. 
So, you know, I just personally feel like leave that format for the Battle Royal. For a ladder match, Give us just give us a regular ladder match. I don't think we need the theatrics of people making entrances one at a time and then a Joker coming in at the end. I know they do it to pop people to have that last person be a surprise. I think you can just have a surprise mystery entrant. And when you're doing the match, they're the last person that comes out. Just like the Hardy Boys at WrestleMania in that tag team ladder match. It was still a huge surprise and the crowd went wild that the Hardy Boys came out at the end. You can still have that same impact but allow that person to be in the entire match. So that's just one tweak I would make uh, for AEW when it comes to the ladder matches. All right, let's move on. Um, We'll talk Brian Danielson and the elite, this storyline that's going on. So we're going to start with Rampage, where we had Danielson against Nick Jackson. Brian hit a butterfly suplex into an arm breaker. Matt speared Danielson outside. Nick missed a 450 splash inside, but landed a great Escalera corkscrew outside. Brian came back with a release German suplex outside and a butterfly suplex bridge inside for a near fall. Then he locked Nick in cattle mutilation and he got the tap out. The Elite, Jurassic Express, and Christian Cage all came down and brawled. Kenny Omega tried to attack, but Brian tapped him out with the bell lock while Jungle Boy submitted Adam Cole with the snare trap. There was some good wrestling here, but I gotta say, this fell way below my expectations in terms of match quality. Like, I mentioned big spots, but it just didn't seem like it all fit together. So I went 3.25 stars and a B, which again, is not a bad grade by any means, but I know there's people who just because it was Danielson and Nick Jackson, when I say people, I mean a certain someone, they're probably going to give it a four-star grade right off the bat. Um, for me, it wasn't. It just, it really wasn't that great of a match. I was a little bit disappointed. Uh, speaking of, on Dynamite, we had Danielson, Christian, and Jurassic Express against the Super Elite. This opened the show. There was a really corny spot where Jungle Boy just stood on the top rope. And then after that, chaos broke out. Cutler and Nakazawa distracted Christian outside, leading the Young Bucks to hit the Indie Taker, and then Christian got ruled out of the match from there. Fans popped for the kissing spot with the Young Bucks and Adam Cole, which they're doing now in every match. Omega and Danielson got a few minutes together. That was obviously the best part, with Brian hitting a Hurricanrana and a diving headbutt. Nick broke cattle mutilation with a senton bomb when uh, Danielson had it on Omega. Luchasaurus did a really cool chokeslam. He chokeslammed Cole onto Omega, who was standing but like leaning over. That was ridiculous. And then he did a moonsault outside, which was also crazy, before Jungle Boy jumped over the ropes for a moonsault of his own. Then at that point, the tagging completely stopped. Luchasaurus nearly pinned Cole, who got him with a low blow. The Elite then totally botched a four-man powerbomb with Omega falling on his ass. Cole hit Panama Sunrise and nearly pinned Luchasaurus. Despite, I'm almost positive, Cole was not legal. I think Luchasaurus may have been legal, but I'm not 100% sure. Jungle Boy then ate a four-way BTE trigger and got pinned by Cole. And I know for a fact Jungle Boy was not legal because if anyone was, it was Luchasaurus or Danielson. So how do I break all this down? The first half of this match, just being honest, you know I'm honest on this podcast. The first half was absolute dog shit. It was terrible. The second half was a shitload of fun but purely in terms of the entertainment value, not really the wrestling, because once it devolved into chaos for a second time, nothing mattered. Rick Knox did nothing to enforce or try to enforce any tags or rules. And like I said, I am 99% sure that Omega was legal and I'm, I don't know, 50-50 on either Danielson or Luchasaurus being legal, but I know, I'm almost positive that Jungle Boy was not. 
So when Cole pinned Jungle Boy, I think it was two illegal people, you know, factoring into the finish. And if there were tags, and maybe there were, they were off screen, they weren't important. They were things that did not register to me as a viewer as I was watching the match. I mean, no matter what, Knox literally counted falls for two different faces. I'm pretty sure without there being a tag. So this match gets no grade. It just was not for me. Do I appreciate the athleticism and the fun that we got over the second half? Absolutely. It was a great time. I was entertained. Was it good wrestling? Not to me. Not in my book. That's not how I like my wrestling. I like it to be real. I like it to matter. And this whole thing just didn't feel like it mattered that much. All right, moving on. CM Punk came out in the second segment on Dynamite to get serenaded and talk about his love of wrestling. Punk said he'd buy everyone a cheesesteaks or wrestle. They could choose one of the two. He then called out Daniel Garcia for his prior attack weeks ago and challenged him to a match on Rampage. Punk then took off Jordans he was wearing and gave them to some kid dressed as Orange Cassidy in the front row. I presume that kid was there for a reason, but or, or given the shoes for a reason, but I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. Uh, he also had cut a taped promo on Rampage that was not really directed to anyone in particular. The crowd pops for anything CM Punk does, but this was very in line with most of his promos recently. It was much ado about nothing. This Team Taz feud that I thought was going on, it's basically stopped. He beat Hobbs and Starks is worried about Cage. That hasn't progressed at all. We did see Cage later in the show. We'll talk about that, but like that's been turning its wheels for weeks. It seems like CM Punk has nothing to do. And I don't know how that's possible where you have CM Punk and he's just fighting Daniel Garcia on a rampage just because. Maybe that's just me. Uh, There was video of Arn Anderson in Cody Rhodes' backyard burning a suit in a barrel. We never were told it was a suit until later in the video. Cody stopped him from burning his tie and then he got slapped. So he threw the tie in the barrel. And that was the segment. Uh, It's clearly meant to be some type of tough love coaching to get Cody's mind focused on what really matters. It didn't really hit for me at all. I think we got the message last week and at least that ended up being accidentally comedic with Arn talking about pulling out a Glock. This was just like nothing really. Uh, What's Arn gonna do next? Like neuter Pharaoh, like kidnap Pharaoh and take him to the vet? I, I don't really know how this progresses or how it helps Cody be someone who can suddenly take down Malachi Black. Now on Friday on Rampage, Malachi Black cut a video promo and he said the black mist he spit in Cody's face came from his heart and he's grown weary of the Nightmare family. So it seems like Black is trying to distance himself from this feud while Arn is focused on like preparing Cody to go back at Black or at least get him in the right frame of mind after what happened with Aleister Black. But I loved Aleister, I keep calling him Aleister Black, Malachi Black's promo Because I thought it gave us some storyline development explaining that the mist is what was turning Cody heel from the inside out. And if that's the storyline and that ends up being what they're doing, I am going to love that because that is awesome. It's a great concept. It's such, such a smart, different type of way to go. But the segments with Arn make it feel like that's not the direction they're going. So I'm just not exactly sure what they're doing. It seems like Aleister Black, sorry, I just did it again. Malachi Black is moving on because back on Dynamite, Dante Martin was cutting a solo promo in the ring, putting himself over for his recent success. Um, And then he issued an open challenge. The lights went out. Black showed up behind him. 
he spit black mist in Martin's face and then hit the black mess. And this was easily the best thing, individual segment, over the first 75 minutes of Dynamite. The look, feel, the aesthetic, whatever you want to call it, of Malachi Black works exceptionally well. And he feels both mental and incredibly destructive. But if they're not going to tie the Black Mist into Cody in a potential heel turn with him doing it to Dante Martin and Dante Martin potentially changing, then it seems like the promo we cut on Rampage isn't going to factor into anything having to do with Cody. And the mist isn't going to factor into anything with Cody and Martin. Or perhaps it will. Perhaps spitting the mist in his face leads to a promo, leads to a um, a storyline that was created in a promo from Leo Rush later in the show, where he said he's a businessman and Dante Martin is undervalued as a prospect. He wants them to talk. And obviously Leo, it seems like, is going to be on the heel side. So maybe all of this fits together. Maybe the mist is Cody turning Cody heel and Arn Anderson is going to have to fight against him in that regard and get his head right and turn him back face eventually. And maybe it's going to take Dante Martin, this level baby face, and have him find a dark side or, or, you know, think about money and greed being more important and start working with Leo Rush. Or maybe it's not. Maybe The Mist is not going to have any impact on either of those things, even though that promo from Rampage made it seem like it was going to. I don't know all of this that I'm kind of discussing with you right now. Does it seem convoluted? It does. And and that's why I'm trying to explain it out. I don't know exactly what they're doing unless I am trying to read something into very baseline wrestling booking where Malachi Black said that, but it doesn't actually matter. Cody's just doing his own separate thing now. And Arn Anderson is trying to stop him from being an asshole who cares more about his suits and being an EVP than actually wrestling. And maybe the Dante Martin thing with Leo Rush is just separately going to happen after Malachi Black kicks his ass this week on Rampage. So maybe I'm going overboard here. Um, But I just wish it all fit together a little bit better. And I felt like with that Rampage promo from Black, it was going to. But maybe it's not going to. So it's going to be a wait and see. Uh, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about my theory on all this. Or again, if I'm just kind of reading too much into it. So there you go. I went on a rant about that. Uh, probably way too long. But anyway, we'll move on. TNT Championship. Sammy Guevara defended against Bobby Fish. Before the match, Fish got a 10-second taped promo about training in MMA as his background. He had an avalanche falcon arrow, which was the spot of the match and one of the best on the show for a near fall. Sammy then caught Fish with a GTH for the win. The two spots I mentioned were good. The rest of the match was nothing to write home about. I do wish Sammy had a better first opponent as new TNT champion. Also, we didn't see Miro on the entire show because now that he doesn't have the TNT title, they don't really have a feud for him. Uh, Sammy got surrounded after the match and attacked by American top team. Fuego de Sol made the save and got killed by them. Finally, Chris Jericho and Jake Hager came down to brawl and cleared the ring of three professional MMA fighters that were men, one that was a woman, and Scorpio Sky. Dan Lampert got his ass booed as he challenged a six-man match with three inner circle members against the men of the year and Junior Dos Santos with Jorge Masvidal at ringside since it's going to be in Miami. Jericho tried to cut a promo back. His mic didn't work. Then he got one that did work and he accepted it. This was awful. Straight up. The only thing that made the crowd pop in this entire thing was Judas, which they sang loudly loudly 
as the fight was happening and then as Lambert began his promo because the fight, the brawl, didn't last long enough to encompass the song. They weren't cheering for the attack. They certainly didn't cheer or didn't act surprised or excited when all the MMA people showed up. They sang Judas. That was what popped the crowd out of this entire segment. Um, Look, Lambert is terrible. American Top Team's attack is terrible. Jericho and Hager making the save against all of that legitimate fighter talent. Not only was it terrible, it was nonsensical. And I do not give a flying fuck about this match next week. Please let this be the end. Get this off my screen. Zero point zero. And don't forget, I praised Dan Lambert over his first two appearances. This has just devolved and gotten so bad. AEW promoted a Tony Khan announcement, yet it was Tony Schiavone and Aubrey Edwards who unveiled the brand new TBS championship, a secondary women's title. It looks exactly like the TNT title with the TBS logo instead of TNT, which makes it look worse because that logo is actually really shitty. And a sky blue sash instead of the red sash, even though the TNT title sometimes changes depending on who holds it. Now, it does look better than the AEW Women's Championship, the original one, but that's really not saying much. Uh, A bunch of women later in the show then got five seconds each to say they want the title and take promos. So check this out. AEW now has as many women's titles as it puts on women's matches on television in a given week. Two total, one each on Dynamite and Rampage. This, to me, this championship seems completely unnecessary, akin to the second set, and some would even argue the first set, but the second set of women's tag team titles in WWE, which are now in NXT. TNT as a title name, it made sense because not only was it on TNT, and I know that AEW is moving to TBS, but stay with me here. Not only was it on TNT, the show's name was Dynamite. So if you're going to have a television title, which is clearly what they were doing with this, TNT, Dynamite, it all fits together. Even though it's the network name, it also makes sense and sounds pretty cool as the name of a championship. None of that is the same with TBS. TBS is just stupid. Now, I hope AEW proves me wrong, and I hope this works out somehow. But right now, it seems like a total waste, and it was poorly done to boot. There was no creativity in creating a championship that looks a little bit different. And I know some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute, Silver King. Don't WWE's four major titles all look exactly the same, just in different color schemes? They absolutely do. However, what is front and center in those championships? The WWE logo. They also all look prominent. Now, if you want to make an argument to me that the AEW world title looks better than the WWE world title, I'm not going to argue that. They are very different and they've been created for vastly different reasons. AEW's is meant to look like a wrestling championship. WWE is, is made to look like a promotional tool, something that other people can wear. And when you see it, you know immediately it's a WWE title. So, Yes, if you want to give AEW the edge for the world championship, that's fine. The rest of their championships, they kind of pale in comparison to what WWE has. But more importantly than that, when they first introduced the TNT title, it was terrible. And they did tell us it was not the final version. And when they unveiled the final version with the black strap, with the gold and the white gold and all the different uh, arrangements of it that we didn't get to see on the first version, it is a very pretty title. It's actually way, way better 
than I initially thought it was going to be. But to just take that title, change the logo, and change the sash color, and say now this is a women's championship also, it doesn't work. So now you have AEW Dynamite, the show that was named after, or at least partially due to the network name TNT, moving to TBS, and you have Rampage, a show that could have been on either channel, staying on TNT because they've actually reversed that. They were gonna move both to TBS. Instead, they're gonna keep Rampage on TNT. So at least the TNT title still makes sense because they're gonna be on the network and it does still play into the thematic AEW Dynamite and just AEW aspect that they've kind of gone with since they started. But the TBS title is is terrible. The name is bad. The look is bad. It, it just, it, top to bottom, it doesn't work for me. I'm really surprised that they had an opportunity to do something unique and different here. And they didn't actually do something unique and different. A trios title for the men, considering how many factions and groups there are in AEW, would have made a ton of sense. I don't love the idea of women's tag team titles for AEW, given that, again, we barely see the women as it is, and they certainly haven't established tag teams, at least not more than one. I guess TJ would probably be the main one. But a women's tag team championship at least would have been something different. Instead, we just have another women's title that looks just like the TNT title. And it seems like they're using it almost as a crutch, as a way to figure out a reason to get women on television and matches that matter, as opposed to having, you know, number one contenderships or creating storylines just plain. And WWE struggles to create non-title women's storylines also, but they do. They're doing it right now with Naomi. They have one with Liv and Carmella. Are they good? The Liv, the Naomi one is good. The Liv Morgan one with Carmella is absolutely terrible, but they're achieving it. They're at least doing it, right? This feels like a crutch. I feel like they gave zero thought to it. And even if you're going to call it the TBS title, which again, I totally disagree with, and I think the logo looks terrible, to have it look exactly like the TNT title and not even change the strap color or change the faceplate so it's at least a little bit different, a little bit, instead of a circle, maybe it's a, you know, a different shape. I don't know what they could have done. It shouldn't have been this. I think this is, fans seem to be fine with it and maybe they don't want to admit that it's bad. To me, it's bad. Uh, Britt Baker said in a backstage promo that the jealous bitches in the back can fight amongst themselves and now not bother her because there's a new title. And that was a fine promo, but just adding the second title when the women barely get time, as I've been saying, it kind of devalues the women's world championship a little bit. Because now we're not going to see it as frequently, or at least, I mean, Britt Baker isn't on most shows anyway, right? So now we're going to see her even less because there's a secondary title. It's the same issue that AEW had when it was using the NWA Women's Championship. But now they have one on their own brand that they actually, you would think, care about more and are going to try to use more frequently. So again, another rant. I did not mean to go on as long as I did, but I I had problems with this. Uh, Darby Allen fought Nick Camarado. Darby sat down with Jim Ross explaining that he paints half his face because 50% of him feels dead inside due to the DUI car accident um, with his uncle that MJF referenced in last week's promo. The entire interview, by the way, consisted of one question. 90% of this match took place during a commercial break and Darby won with the coffin drop. So because of that, I have no takeaways, but I did like the quick interview promo that he did. QT Marshall then came into the ring and hit a diamond cutter on Sting after the match. Sting completely no-sold it and then hit the Scorpion death drop. 
I have no idea why Sting continues to no-sell other people's moves like this. Uh, a reader pointed out, and I'll try to uh, ramble a little bit so that I can find his name, but, oh, it was uh, Sean McDermott at I'm Bored Brother. I mentioned this previously when 2.0 double powerbombed Sting through a table, and he just got up. Why is a guy Sting's age no selling moves from younger wrestlers. The guy's 62. You're telling me a double powerbomb through a table and a diamond cutter. I know it's QT Marshall. Don't get me wrong. But you're telling me these things can't put him out for at least 30 seconds, 60 seconds. He gets to spring right back up to his feet. It's ridiculous. Uh, And then later in the show, Darby was in a garage area. He was told that his match against MJF is set for next week on Dynamite. A limo then suddenly rolled up. Uh, Good timing, by the way. And Darby got prepared to fight when a man in a black ski mask hit him with the chair from behind and then grabbed the camera while three others in black ski masks attacked him and lawn darted him into a barricade. Darby then ate an F10 into a barricade that was laid on the floor before another guy in a mask choked Darby out with his own skateboard. So this was clearly FTR, Wardlow, and MJF. AEW then announced Darby would not be cleared to wrestle next week. So let, let me clarify. I loved the attack. It was actually really well done and Darby sold it extremely well. I have zero idea why they were wearing masks. Is it literally just for MJF to cut a promo next week and deny it when it was blatantly obvious and Wardlow did his finisher? It just seems like, what's the point of it? Why would you want to deny it? You're okay. It's okay. You're a heel. This is a heel faction. You guys are pieces of shit. Everyone knows MJF is a terrible human being. So why would you want to masquerade an attack like this? Um, Again, maybe they'll answer it next week. MJF's really good on the mic. If he explains it next week, I'll let it slide. The attack itself, though, and the stuff with Darby, the entire segment was very good. Uh, Ricky Starks on Rampage cut a vignette promo on Brian Cage, saying there's a huge talent gap between them, and Cage's size does not give him any advantage. I thought that was really good. On Dynamite, Starks appeared with the FTW title, saying he was going to challenge Cage to a Philadelphia street fight, but he wasn't there. So then Cage runs out, and they brawl for 30 seconds before the rest of Team Taz makes the save. I think this was a perfect example of AEW feeling like they need to shove every storyline on every show when they do not need to do that, especially when you have Rampage that you're taping in the same building. Why not allow this entire storyline to be contained on Rampage? Why not say, Ricky Starks is going to have some words for Brian Cage on Rampage. And then you're promoting the show and you do this attack on that show. And by the way, by taking this off of Dynamite, you're giving five additional minutes to the latter match that was a little bit too short. Hikaru Shida fought Serena Deeb. AEW made a mini Lucite trophy to give Shida for her 50th win. Shida hit a nice missile dropkick and a pump knee plus a crossbody outside. Deeb came back with a swinging neckbreaker for a near fall. Sheeta face-planted Deeb, then hit a falcon arrow for a near fall. Deeb raked Sheeta's eyes and then hit the detox for a 2.8 count. Then Deeb put on the serenity lock for a submission win. Deeb afterwards smacked Sheeta with a trophy to cement a full heel turn. This was a very solid 10-minute match, and it was the best wrestling we got on the show in its entirety until the main event. I assume the idea is that everyone just thought Sheeta would beat Deeb for win number 50, and it pissed her off. It was far better booking than Sheeta just winning. And I like the idea, not necessarily of Sheeta having a long losing streak, but of it taking a little bit for her to get win number 50 and maybe even 
her wanting win number 50 to be a revenge win over Serena Deeb. So I liked all of that. I gave it 3.25 stars and a B for the match. Very entertaining. One of the better, shorter AEW women's matches that we've had, especially one that was not for a title. A couple things on Rampage and then some extra stuff from Dynamite. Uh, Rampage, we had Jade Cargill versus Nyla Rose versus Thunder Rosa. Uh, Rosa drop-kicked a trash can into Cargill, but Nyla broke the fall. Jade took out Nyla with the Spinebuster, but she came back with a neckbreaker and a single-leg crab that got broken by Rosa. Nyla climbed atop the rope, and Rosa powerbombed her through a table outside, which was a sick spot, and it got a huge pop from the crowd. Jade then wore Rosa out with a chair and got a 1-2-3 to basically no response and a finish that fell flat. The match was really enjoyable for sure, and it got good time. But if Jade is not immediately given a title match, I'm not sure what it accomplished. It seems like they're doing a tournament for the TBS title, but Jade just beat two of the top women in the company in a triple threat. Is she going to be the next challenger for Britt Baker? I assume not, considering they're both heels. But what's the result of this? That is the only thing I didn't understand here. Uh, I'll still go three stars and a B minus. The, the table spot was sick and the finish was just flat. So it was not good enough to live up to the match, obviously, that we got on Dynamite. In fact, it makes me rethink the Dynamite match and maybe go a little bit higher, like 3.5 stars and a B, but it was in the 3.25 and 3.5 range. This one was in the three range with a B minus. And then also on Rampage, we had Orange Cassidy against Jack Evans in a hair versus hair match. Orange no-sold the stipulation hysterically in the pre-match interview. He was like, oh, okay, so I guess I'll cut his hair. Very funny. Uh, He had a couple tope suicidas and was getting up on Evans when HFO came out, only to be confronted by best friends in Dark Order. Evans ate an orange punch for the one, two, three. He got his ponytail cut off and his head shaved. I liked Orange's promo. The match, the result, all of this, not for me. It was pretty terrible, not at all entertaining. And the crowd, worst of all, was pretty silent through the entire finish and the post-match. Wasn't great. A couple extra things from Dynamite. The Acclaimed said they'd beat Lucha Bros for the tag team titles. I don't think it was mentioned, but they are the number one contenders based on the AEW rankings. Me as a viewer, I didn't know it. I actually had to look it up because I was going to criticize AEW for making this match when we've barely seen the Acclaimed on TV because Max Caster has been out. I, I don't know if it was a suspension or he was injured, whatever. He made some comments that people didn't like, but they just show up and now they're in a title match. To me, it came out of nowhere. There's zero build to it. I check the rankings. I go, oh, it makes sense. They're number one contenders. They didn't really say that. I wish they had. And then also Dark Order had a meeting in the locker room with Evil Uno saying they should all make decisions together. There was some comedy. It was okay. So that's AEW Dynamite and Rampage. There were there were a lot of good things I liked on Dynamite, but some of the booking, some of the storytelling this week, more than anything else, I found to be a little bit strange and confusing. I know I went on the rant a little bit too long, admittedly, about the Malachi Black, Cody, and now Dante Martin stuff. I do wish that all would fit together a little bit well. But the title, the announcement of that title, it did disappoint me. I kind of wish they had done something a little bit better than that. But nevertheless, it was a good episode of Dynamite. Not great. Rampage, not a fan uh, this week at all. So with that, let's move over to NXT. And talking again about a good, not great episode, it's basically what we got from NXT as well. I will say off the top, the one thing I appreciate that NXT has done over the last two weeks is they're doing less. I said a couple weeks ago they were doing too much. They had 10 matches 
in the first two shows. There were segments that were nonstop. Everything was way too short. They've gone away from that. They've relaxed a little bit. I would have to count up the matches. In fact, I'll do it before I continue. But things have slowed down. People are getting more time. And while I still don't love the aesthetic of the show, you can at least say that they are trying to go in a certain direction and it feels like they are achieving the direction they're trying to go in, for better or for worse. So yes, after a quick count, there were exactly eight matches on the show, four per hour. That's what we used to get back in the day with NXT on WWE Network. We'd get four matches in that hour-long show. Now we're getting eight in the two-hour show, plus vignettes and promos and all that type of stuff. So they did exactly what I asked. I still want the matches to be a little bit longer, but it was closer, definitely much closer to ideal than it was the first two weeks. The main event was a tag team championship fatal four-way elimination match between MSK, Grizzled Young Veterans, Briggs and Jensen, and then Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams. So this started earlier in the day as an eight-man match, became a fatal four-way title match before the show, and then during the show became an elimination match. I don't even understand. I mean, you want to talk about like maybe there's a little bit of WWE influence back in NXT. This was the paradigm of that. I have no idea what happened to necessitate all those changes. Also, this match was not contested in my preferred rules, where in a triple threat or a fatal four-way, really more a fatal four-way, all four teams have one person participating at the same time. Uh, Rather, it was two at a time. I presume they did that because it was an elimination match. MSK hit their still unnamed, somehow, springboard flip blockbuster on trick to eliminate their team first. Nash Carter went on a roll with some really sick nonstop offense against James Drake. GYV hit Ticket to Mayhem on Carter, but there was no fall for Zach Gibson, who didn't realize that Carter wasn't the legal man. Briggs and Jensen tagged in to hit a double choke slam sit-down powerbomb, a really sick finisher, to pin Gibson and eliminate GYV, and I was shocked that GYV was not there at the end, but based on how the booking unraveled, I understood. Wesley barely kicked out of a Russian leg sweep, big boot combo. Then the rookies hit a double spinebuster. They went for their finisher again when Carter took out Briggs, and Lee rolled off Jensen's shoulders, trapping him in a one, two, three. The rookies grabbed the titles and gave them to MSK, dapping them up for good measure. So I think that was an indication that them as rookies are actually faces. So I needed to know that because they really did seem like a heel tag team. The match was a lot of fun. I actually gave it 3.5 stars and a B. Despite some of the guys being green, everyone really worked well together. But more importantly than the work, the match was planned out well. MSK is just another level of excitement. Main roster fans would absolutely go wild for them, and it's a matter of when, not if they get called up. Honestly, it could have happened in this draft, and I would have been okay with it, because the NXT fans are still shitting on them, because of I, I could get into it again, I don't even want to. The most ridiculous reason ever, they've, they're still booing MSK like 18 months later. It's just ridiculous. This match got about 14 minutes in total, just like with the AEW main event. It should have been a little bit longer, especially as a fatal four-way elimination match. It should have been given 20, but it was okay for what it was. Another solid main event. After the match, Imperium tacked MSK from behind, stacked them before Briggs and Jensen ran in to save their apparent new friends. It's strange to me that NXT had MSK run through the Grizzled Young Veterans and two young teams only to set up a feud with Imperium as the number one contenders. If it's just for an upcoming title match, Okay, but it feels like they might actually change the titles here with Imperium, given the storyline was how MSK is at the top of the division after beating everyone. And if they do that, 
and MSK does not move to the main roster, which you would think that they would have during the draft, then they're just still on NXT, basically not as champions and losing to a team that, while I respect Imperium, they have great wrestling talent, they don't really have a lot of charisma. And that is a decision that I don't know would be the best for the division as a whole. So I did find that to be pretty interesting slash maybe slightly depressing. Uh, We had Mandy Rose against Ember Moon in a singles match. This opened the show. Mandy got powerbombed onto the ring apron early before catching Ember coming back inside and flipping her over backwards in a cool spot. Moon came back with an awesome jumping code breaker off the middle rope, but Mandy avoided the eclipse and caught Moon with a pump knee for the win in about six minutes. I wish this went longer because they were both working relatively well together and it did deserve more time, but obviously Mandy did have to be the one to win given she's going to be the number one contender for the NXT title and Moon is in the process of doing a losing streak storyline. So it didn't even hurt her that much because she's been losing and that was the entire point. This was basically what the minimum of a women's match should be on Raw or SmackDown, but it was entertaining. Much later in the show, Raquel Gonzalez told Mandy in an interview that she's been dominating the NXT women's division for a year and she'd put her body in a cast if it touched her title again. Mandy came out saying Raquel seemed desperate as fans chanted what, like really annoying idiots. Toxic Attraction said they'd soon hold all of the women's gold in NXT. Then they surrounded the ring until Io Shirai and Zoe Stark ran in to even the odds and chase them away. So I presume we're headed for a six-woman tag team match and then maybe title matches at an upcoming special event that we'll get to. This all worked. The crowd was annoying. It didn't let the women speak. It didn't let the women's promos get any chances to shine. Clearly, NXT is trying to push Toxic Attraction hard. It'll be curious to see if they switch all the titles. I hope they don't. Um, Again, especially coming out of the draft where if you were going to move Raquel Gonzalez, if you were going to move Io Shirai and Zoe Stark, if you're going to move MSK, you would have done that in the draft. You don't do it after the draft. Or maybe they will, and it'll be a free agent signing period or something like that. We will find out. Uh, But the storyline with Raquel and Toxic Attraction, does it make sense? I don't know that it does. Uh, I'm curious to see kind of how it unfolds. Maybe it gets intense enough with Raquel and Mandy where I start buying into it a little bit later. There was a quick commentary table spot where Vic Joseph asked Beth Phoenix how she and the family were doing after Seth Rollins invaded their house on Raw. WWE often ignores continuity and relationships, someone being someone else's wife or husband, etc. So I appreciated that this was a quick aside that played into the Raw storyline. Legado del Fantasma said Hit Row was lucky they got drafted to SmackDown because Legado would have embarrassed them. Santos Escobar questioned Swerve's manhood for not defending the title and said he has one last chance to prove himself before leaving NXT. Obviously, NXT needs to get the title off Swerve, but this match was always coming anyway. Again, a good job by NXT recognizing and adapting to things that are happening on the main roster. Two unique situations back to back, but NXT is making it work. Escobar will obviously win the title, but of course, that is more than fine with me. Hit Row later laughed at the idea that they're running from Legato. Swerve took the challenge and said the only way Escobar would see the title going forward is Friday nights. It was another good promo setting up the obvious title match and obvious title change. We had LA Knight against Odyssey Jones. Knight was getting over early with his experience when Jones' size became a huge advantage. Just as Odyssey was ready to go to town and probably pick up the win, Andre Chase ran in and stuck Odyssey. Then after that, Knight hit a neckbreaker. Chase pushed Jones' leg out from under the ropes so the referee didn't see it into the ring. 
and Knight got the one, two, three. Given they've been building the feud between the two rookies, this made sense, but it also didn't help anyone get over. Maybe Chase got over a little bit as a heel, but Knight's a guy who was just competing for the world title and is one of the few veterans remaining on the brand. For him to need the help of Andre Chase to beat Odyssey Jones, maybe just because Jones is so big, it makes sense. But otherwise, Knight should be able to beat this guy. He's a neophyte. Like, it's a little bit ridiculous. Uh, Joe Gacy fought Ikaminjiro. JC cut a promo in a black room saying he'd resolve conflict in the ring with two winners on the show. Jiro in the match hit a cool springboard inverted hurricanrana, but missed a flying dropkick as Gacy did a back handspring lariat for the win. Gacy was clearly the heel side, but he didn't act like it. He helped Jiro up and hugged him after the match. As Gacy was walking out, a really weird tattooed ball dude started staring him down from the crowd. I'm, I was almost positive in the moment, but now I am after watching it and being on Twitter that it was Parker Bordeaux. And he looked weird, almost like a skinhead from American History X. And I believe they called him Harland, or that is at least his name, Harland. Strange name. Uh, Jiro has a cool aesthetic. As far as Gacy, it's still too early to decide whether this is gonna work or not. The match was fine. Harland, I don't think Harland's a guy who's gonna fight Gacy, so I assume he's gonna be the muscle for Gacy. But if you have a guy with Gacy's character, and then you have a guy in Harland who kind of looks like a skinhead, the vibes that's giving off may not be what WWE actually wants. We'll see what happens. We'll see how they work together. Maybe uh, Gacy gets Harlan into a suit instead of the gear he was wearing. We'll find out. It was a very odd debut, I will say. Uh, Tommaso Ciampa announced the return of Halloween Havoc on the Tuesday before the holiday, saying he needs a challenger and is wondering whether Braun Breaker was all talk or would actually step up. So Breaker came out saying he's treated Ciampa with respect, but still wants the NXT title. Ciampa said to some, the NXT title is a stepping stone. To him, it is the end-all be-all. He accepted the challenge, said Breaker had to go from an intern to a PhD in three weeks, and then bumped his shoulder on the way out. It was a pretty damn good face-off segment for a neophyte like Breaker, but man, they better not put the freaking title on him too soon. That would be an absolute travesty. Champa was cutting a promo backstage when Gacy approached saying he was toxic and privileged and that Gacy wanted to be added to the title match. Champa said they could fight one-on-one next week for the opportunity. So now we're thinking about, okay, does Harlan get involved in there and help Gacy maybe get into the title match? Is it a triple threat match where Gacy becomes the fall guy who Breaker beats and Champa loses the title? Let's just hope those things don't come to fruition. I am very concerned about that potential booking. This should be a warm-up match for Champa. Maybe Gacy looks good fighting against a veteran. And then Champa should theoretically go in and beat Breaker. Any other result beyond those would be very concerning. Uh, there was a vignette for Duke Hudson who said he's a professional poker player. That was literally it. There was nothing to take away from it. Cora Jade was set to have a match. She came out in what I believe was a footboard, like a single small little skateboard. I'm not a youth and I, I don't skateboard, so give me a break. Um, but she looked pretty cool coming down to the ring like that. They sold that she's only 20 and has only been training in wrestling for two years. Before the bell, Frankie Monet appeared out of nowhere and absolutely killed a jobber named Virginia Ferry with a glam slam at ringside as Robert Stone demanded they start a match between the two. So we ended up getting Cora Jade against Frankie Monet. Monet started decimating Jade when uh, Cora Jade's boyfriend, Trey Baxter, ran down for support. 
Monet speared Jade and was about to hit the glam slam when she paused, allowing Jade to roll over her shoulders with a pinning combination for the surprise upset win. It was a nice piece of booking, but the match was way too short. I wanted to see both of them go a little bit, and we never even got the opportunity. Also, for that to be the finish to this match, and then for it to be the finish to the main event of the show, with MSK doing that to Brooks and Jensen, it would have been nice if one of those ended a little bit differently. Uh, backstage, Kyle O'Reilly asked Von Wagner why he had his back the last couple of weeks. Wagner said he jumped at the opportunity, but respected O'Reilly because he had his heart. O'Reilly then nicely asked him to let, his, let him handle his own business. So we got Cameron Grimes versus Pete Dunne. Grimes backstage said he's on a search to find a lady because he was jealous of others in NXT who have women. Dunn with Ridge Holland stepped up to the challenge and Grimes brushed them off to go flirt with some women. Grimes in the ring hit a big flying crossbody for a near fall, then flipped over Dunn, grabbing him for a German suplex bridge for another near fall. Holland was about to hit Grimes with a nightstick when O'Reilly ran in to stop him. Dunn threw O'Reilly over a table. Grimes hit Dunn with a punt kick, but Dunn countered the cave-in into the ropes. He like basically uh, hung him up over the ropes, I guess is the best way to put it, and hit the bitter end for the one, two, three. O'Reilly attacked again, but got destroyed two on one. So there was some good business here with Dunn going over, the Brits looking strong. I figured Holland would disappear after being drafted to SmackDown, but I guess he's going to be there for a couple more weeks. The match was solid, but again, not long enough to be special. And Wagner did live up to Kyle O'Reilly's request to not help him. So that storyline is obviously going to continue. Now, what happened after a commercial break, we found out, was Wagner helped him out of the ring and told O'Reilly later that they're in a tag team match next week against the two Brits. And like it or not, he's the only one who has O'Reilly's back. So they're telling a story. It's interesting. O'Reilly and Wagner, do I care? I really don't at all. I don't know how this helps O'Reilly. Wagner, the look, the gimmick. I don't even know what the gimmick is. It, it just doesn't really work. Um, I don't think he has the potential that WWE and NXT maybe think he does. But, you know, he was good in that match. I think it was two weeks ago. So credit where that's due. But character-wise, promo-wise, as a personality, talking to O'Reilly, it just doesn't work for me. And then the main event for some of you, apparently, uh, Tony D'Angelo fought Malik Blade. We got another stereotypical vignette from D'Angelo before his debut, debut match, and he came out, as one would expect, in a velour tracksuit and a wife beater with a hat. The best part of this entire thing was he tried to slip the referee some cash before the match to bribe him, which was pretty sly and kind of funny if you caught it. The crowd chanted for Tony D the entire time, despite him being the heel. D'Angelo eventually tricked Blade, hit a belly-to-belly -belly suplex and a northern light suplex, rolled into a fisherman's neckbreaker for the win. 95% of the match was plain wrestling, nothing special. But to be fair, D'Angelo's finisher and that whole, you know, finishing segment to the match, it looked awesome. Also, the guy, to his credit, is full of charisma. I'm still not fond about the character being so stereotypical, as opposed to giving us a little bit more of a modern take of it. But the fans did seem really into it, and a lot of people online seem to like it. Now, I presume they like it ironically, but maybe not. Or maybe they started liking it ironically, but now they legitimately like it. I'm honestly just surprised the guy didn't pull out like a cannoli to celebrate or drink some Sunday sauce after the match. It seemed like it was going in that direction. So Tony D'Angelo, 
kind of like with LA Knight, but a little bit different. LA Knight is a terrible name, although Tony D'Angelo is also a terrible name because if you Google it, you pull up a Wikipedia page of a hockey player who did some pretty unsavory things. Um, so the name I don't love. The gimmick being so stereotypical, I don't love. But the guy does have charisma. He can definitely wrestle. So maybe there's something there and maybe they can eventually transition out of this into something else or make it less stereotypical, give him more of an edge, a little bit more modern. And if they can go in that direction, then I think it can eventually work. Lash Legend was backstage bragging about the success of her show last week when D'Angelo said she should have him on as a guest if she wants ratings. She said she'd think about it. That was a very unlikely interaction that I obviously did not expect, but it actually made me curious what Lash Legend and Tony D'Angelo could do together on a show. So maybe we'll find that out next week. I had Mags at Mags 316 write in, said, what if Tony D'Angelo's gimmick includes his family of 50 being in the crowd every week to cheer him on? I actually don't hate that idea of like taking a bunch of NXT rookies and training center people who you don't know, um, just WWE workers who maybe work there, have them dress up in Tony D'Angelo t-shirts, sit in a section of the crowd and cheer for him every week and, and be really loud and boisterous. I actually think that's a pretty funny idea if they were to do that. Uh, Indy Hartwell fought Mei Ying. Indy and Persia Parada were making size innuendos uh, about Dexter Loomis backstage when they accidentally saw Ying and Boa in a backstage room. The crowd chanted Indy Loomis uh, as the match started, which I thought was pretty cool. Ying got her grip on Indy inside and again outside the ring, but Hartwell escaped. Persia saved her friend from a big boot. Indy ran Ying into the post and then hit her springboard elbow drop finisher for the wing. And then Ying uh, immediately sat up after they left the ring. Now, I was surprised that this match was booked in the first place because Indy should not be losing. And I don't know how you beat Mei Ying. You're telling me this woman, this spirit, whatever the hell it is, has lived for hundreds of thousands of years but can get run into a post and hit with an elbow drop and lose her second ever match in NXT or third ever match, whatever it was. I guess they're not protecting her at all and they don't really care about this mysterious gimmick. Look, let's be honest. Tian Shaw died as soon as Zia Lee got called up to the main roster. This thing was already on thin ice. I did an interview on this podcast with Shawn Michaels, probably six months ago, nine months ago, where I asked him what new talent or new gimmick, or whatever that's going on with NXT, are you most excited for? And he specifically called out Tien Shaw as the thing he was most excited about. Ever since he said that on this podcast, it has been a downward spiral for the group. Zaylee hurting people, Zaylee herself getting hurt, Boa not looking so great in the ring, now Mei Ying. They're, I mean, I don't want to say they ruined Mei Ying, because what is there really to ruin? But the being... A thousand, multi-thousand-year-old spirit, and just getting beaten by Indy Hartwell in a simple match in a couple minutes. To me, I mean, it's not a burial, but it's certainly not protecting a talent. Uh, this was okay overall, but Indy was great as always this entire time. She's fantastic. Later backstage, Indy and Persia told Stark and Shirai they were going after the women's tag team titles as well, but the champions basically blew them off, considering they already took the titles from Indy and Candice LeRae. So it seems like that's a challenge that will happen maybe a bit further down the line. But again, I was kind of curious, like you had Indy on the show, you didn't have Dexter, 
didn't have Candace, didn't have Johnny. Is something happening there? Are they focusing on India as a tag team partner? And if they are, or sorry, in a tag team, I'm sorry, with Persia Parada. And if they are, what does that mean for the way? Is the way possibly over? I certainly hope it's not. And then lastly, Diamond Mine got an awesome video package hosted by Malcolm Bivens, where he ran down what made every member of the faction special. He put over Ivy Nile as a pit bull, the Creed brothers as the embodiment of ruthless aggression, which is kind of true. They do kind of harken back to that time. And Roderick Strong is the crown jewel of that group. It was one of my favorite things on the entire show. In fact, out of everything I just talked about from AEW and NXT, this video package, I think was the best video package across all of those three shows, Dynamite, Rampage, and NXT. I thought it was exceedingly well done. Diamond Mine, even though I don't love the name of the group, but it does make a lot more sense now, especially that it's larger. It came along at the perfect time for NXT. Just as it was making this transition, just as some fans were gonna lose the indie style, but still wanted something to hang on to, they're kind of getting that with real quote-unquote wrestling with Diamond Mine. It gave Roderick Strong something to sink his teeth into while you look at, you know, Bobby Fish got fired, Adam Cole left, and Kyle O'Reilly's kind of floundering right now. And Ivy Nile looks like she's going to be a massive star. The Creed brothers we know are going to be a massive star as a tag team. It just all really works together. And I got to give NXT a lot of credit for making that work and this video package, which really worked on its own as well. So I didn't give anything a 0.0 or a negative sound drop for NXT. But despite me not doing that, that doesn't mean I think this show was exceptionally strong. It was very... Um, uneven, right? There was good wrestling that was booked, but not given enough time to really be good wrestling. There were some storylines that developed, but they also developed in strange ways that were kind of unexpected and makes me in some time, some ways less excited than I was previously going in. But we're going to have to see, just as I said with AEW, with Dynamite uh, and Rampage, we're going to have to see how some of this plays out in NXT. Both shows have a decent ways to go. Uh, AEW has a long way to go until full gear. A little bit shorter period of time, obviously now until Halloween Havoc for NXT, but Halloween Havoc is certainly not a takeover. So I am curious to see what happens with Halloween Havoc, the way they present it. Is it gonna be as dark and brooding as it was last year when we fawned over it as the maybe the best special event of the year across any show on television? We loved that Halloween Havoc episode. Are we gonna get that again or is it gonna be all lit up and more of a young kids party the Halloween Havoc type of show. I don't know, but we will see in a few weeks. But that is it for episode 220 of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, talking all things AEW and NXT. We will be back on Tuesday with our full WWE episode as that company keeps building towards a WrestleMania-like, credit where it's due, Blood Money in the Sand 6 show coming up in just a couple of weeks. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And do not forget that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So please leave those five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. Let people know how much you love this show. That is it for today. I will see you all on Tuesday. But I am just going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.